0: Okay, Jesse. last week's manacled Mormon cloned dog three-legged horse story. (laughs) Can't even think of all of the things. That
1: was an absolute all-timer. What do you have for me this week? When a lovely young woman is discovered murdered in a military veteran's apartment, a manhunt to find the armed and deadly young man leads to a shocking conclusion. And a chilling confession. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about good friends, bad romance, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter
0: and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on
1: Facebook by searching Love
0: Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder, a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. And speaking of new people... We have a huge thank you shout out to our new set of patrons. Guys, the, the Patreon is still very new and we're very excited about it. So thank you so much for joining. We have some
0: shout outs to go to Michelle K, Leah F and Lori, Stephanie V, Michelle J and Nikki R, Monica C, Amy B, Taylor Ann R, Wendy D, Natalie M, Holly
1: L, Jamie M, Lenny May. Nicole W, Madeline M, Teresa R, one of our very first listeners, Isaac K, Natalie H, Micah K, Kyle R, Melinda K, Nicole, Lena C, Lindsay, Nancy B, Jocelyn J, Christy W, Karem O, Kim M, and our newest Obsessed Level Patron, Sarah H. You guys are so amazing. And by the way, if you didn't hear your
0: name, but you joined in the last couple of days, Do not worry. We're actually recording on Wednesday the 6th because of some upcoming travel. Jesse's birthday. (laughs) And we will promise, we promise, promise, promise that we will not miss you.
1: Yes, absolutely. Very excited to be traveling to Maine and Boston for my birthday. If you're new to the show, thank you so much. Welcome. I promise you, we probably won't have that many patrons every episode. It's just that we launched finally after nearly two years of recording, we finally have a Patreon. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. And we have a really interesting case today. And I I think maybe some of you probably have heard about it. It's been covered by a lot of the types of, you know, snapped ID shows because it really is... Quite a wild journey to get to justice in this story, and it was a request by Juliet K from Instagram, Uh, Juliet, and as well as my other BFF Hannah. She also requested this case. Stop. Yeah, and both of them have a personal connection, which I will explain at the end because I don't want to give anything away. So, thank you, Juliet and Hannah, for suggesting this case. And I think, without further ado, we'll just jump right in. Let's get it on. Sam Hare was a good kid. Nearing 27 years old, his father, Steve, would probably have to admit he was hardly a kid anymore. But when it is your kid, your only child, they'll always be a kid to you, even when they turn into a good man. Sam was a war hero, a college student, as well as being a generous friend, neighbor, cousin, and son. For a young man, Sam was extremely communicative, especially with his parents. So that's why it was so disconcerting for Steve that Sam had missed a planned visit and he had been out of touch for 24 hours. It wasn't like Sam to ghost anyone and certainly not his parents. Steve knew that if something had happened to his cell phone, he could have gone out in the apartment complex he lived in and borrowed a phone from any one of the friends and neighbors that he had and he was close to. So on Saturday, May 22nd, 2010, when he just could not shake the very, very bad feeling that he was having, he decided to take the spare key that Sam had given him and drive over to Sam's place. It was after dark in beautiful Orange County, California, as Steve pulled into the Camden Martinique apartment complex. A veritable Melrose place where mostly young students and young people like Sam himself got together to barbecue, lounge by the pool, and hang out, enjoying those hazy, reckless days of their youth. Remember that, Andy? I do.
0: I'm like, we're so far away from it right now with how busy we both are. It's like depressing. Uh,
1: (laughs) As Steve approached the stairs up to his son's apartment, he had a vision of Sam shivering with a fever wrapped in blankets. And he thought, you know, I'm going to walk in there and Sam's going to be like, oh man, dad, I'm so sorry to worry you. I was just so sick. I didn't get a chance to talk to you. This is what he's thinking. He's looking for any excuse. Irrational excuse. Yeah, indeed. But when Steve did enter the apartment with the twist of the spare key and walk through it to Sam's bedroom, The scene that met him defied all expectation, it defied all comprehension. A slim young woman looked as though she was kneeling on the floor. In Sam's bedroom, her torso on Sam's bed, long jet black hair spilled over her shoulders. Most baffling to Steve was that the young woman's jeans had been pulled down past her knees. Her sweater was ripped open and he could make out that something had been written on her back in black Uh, marker. What? That sounds horrifying, Jesse. Horrifying. Creeping closer with growing horror, he realized that the words scrawled on the woman's back were, fuck you. Dread pitted in his stomach as he suddenly noticed that there was blood on the woman's face on the floor as well as the bed. On the side to back of her head, there was a gaping gunshot wound. Steve leaned forward to look at the woman's delicate face and recoiled when he realized that he knew her. It was Juri Kibuishi who went by Julie, an effervescent 23-year-old student who had become a dear friend of his son's. But Steve knew Julie and Sam were... Just that, friends. How had she come to be in his apartment, murdered, in this state of undress with a vile message scrawled across her back? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't making any sense. Sammy, he cried desperately, but he knew it was in vain. Sam wouldn't have left his friend like this. Maybe, maybe he thought, did he go after the person who did do this? Because there was no way that his son could have hurt Julie like this, Steve thought as his trembling hands dialed 911. No way. But he also knew correctly that it was the first thing that the police would think. Sam Hare was a combat veteran with PTSD and a previous brush with the law, which we will get into later. And now there was a dead body in his apartment of a young woman he was known to have a relationship with, although allegedly platonic. It seemed pretty obvious to the police when they arrived on the scene that apprehending Sam was the first step to finding Julie's killer, and potentially the only step, as Sam was, without a doubt, the number one suspect. But where was he, and what could have happened? The road to justice for Julie would be long, winding, and full of heartbreak. The detectives would soon find out that there was much more than meets the eye to this investigation, one where it seemed like every answer only begged more questions. So let's get into it and talk about our polarizing man on the run, Sam Hare. Sam was born May 29th, 1983, in the L.A. area to loving parents Steve and Raquel Hare. Raquel's parents were Jewish refugees who had raised her in Argentina after fleeing Nazi Germany. Whoa. Yeah, then she went to school in Israel and then decided to immigrate to the United States instead of going back to Argentina. So she's a really fascinating woman. Steve was a Vietnam vet who taught junior high school after retiring from the military. Raquel, also an educator, had married Steve in 1979 after the two had dated for less than a year. They're a really cute and supportive couple. Okay. Raquel's pregnancy and labor had been so aggressively terrible that the family happily agreed to be one and done with Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Steve said in, oh, my sources today, in the book Killing for You by Keith Elliott Greenberg, I also watched an episode of 2020 titled The Final Act from season 41, episode 37. That's from 2019. But he said in the book to the author, Keith Greenberg, that she was in labor screaming, no mas, no mas. And that she basically told him while she was in labor that she was never going to do that again. And he was like, fair enough. You got it. We'll never do this again. Thank you so much. <laughs> but Sam had a lot of cousins that were very close to him. Some of his cousins actually participated in the making of the book and they talked about what a great relationship they had. So he really did have that those sibling-like relationships anyways and a very happy childhood. Sam had natural charisma and took to people and physical endeavors easily. He excelled at sports that he could approach independently the most. Those were the ones that he's shown in. So he liked jujitsu, track, and weight training. He's also a very good looking guy. I think he actually looks like Channing Tatum with a splash of Darren Criss. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like the fact that he looks like Channing
0: Tatum means that he's like 80% of women's types.
1: Yeah. 80% of straight women's type. That is, so, that is and true. And probably like
0: a very good even, percentage even, of male types.
1: Yeah, exactly. Even straight males. <laughs> Despite everything though that Sam had going for him, good looks, a loving and supportive family, and natural athleticism, He definitely fell in with a bad crowd and was allegedly involved in a gang-related murder of a 19-year-old boy. No, no. So this is a No, no bueno. No bueno. According to author Keith Elliott Greenberg in the book Killing for You, Sam was never in a gang himself, but he did have friends with gang affiliations. One of those friends was reportedly Byron Benito, a Guatemalan immigrant with a reputation as a street fighter. In January of 2002, after an apparent rival of Benito's was shot to death, authorities said that Sam helped lure the 19-year-old to a deserted business park on Soledad Canyon Road on the eastern edge of Santa Clarita. There, police said he was set upon by a mob that beat and punched him. Mm -mm. The assault was so vicious that court records said that some of the attackers accidentally knifed each other. Oh, my God. This was very, very brutal. Benito was also hit with a crowbar, prosecutors said, and stabbed 33 times. Oh, my goodness, that poor kid. He ultimately died of a stab wound to the lung. Authorities called it the bloodiest gang fight ever in Santa Clarita, which, as you know, Andy, is home to the Six Flags Magic Mountain Amusement Park. Yeah. Like 35 miles north of Los Angeles. As it turned out, there was no evidence linking Benito to the earlier killing. So he was killed completely in vain because this was supposed to be some sort of revenge killing. Yeah, retaliation, yeah. Yes. 18 people, including five juveniles, were accused of participating in the murder. Sam was 18 at the time. He was close to Benito, police said, and knew Benito's family. Along with another friend, Sam was accused of persuading the victim to come to the crime scene under the pretense of smoking marijuana. Sam never struck Benito, witnesses told prosecutors, but attempted to deceive him about setting up the ambush by pretending to fight with somebody else. Now, Sam was ultimately acquitted, and he was completely cleared of any wrongdoing in this murder plot. While the legal proceedings had gone on, however, Sam had sat in jail for nearly a year This had been a very dark time in his life. And when he met with a psychologist who was employed by his criminal defense attorney, she reported that she was concerned about him committing suicide, potentially harming himself or even harming his parents. Okay. So there's some definite red flags here. His parents loyally stood by him. And the close relationship that he already had with them did deepen Sam got a tattoo of a red heart and rose on his chest, you know, in the location of where his heart would be. And inside of the heart, it said mom and dad. Mm. Yeah. After his acquittal, Sam worked some odd jobs and he set his sights on joining the Marines. And now this was a bumpier road than most to get into the military due to the fact that he had once been accused of such a heinous crime. But once he was accepted, he impressed both his fellow soldiers and commanding officers deeply. Sam was deployed to Afghanistan in 2007, where he saw combat and served 15 long, dangerous months. His squad leader, Larry Gonzalez, said that Sam thrived where others faltered. He, quote, loved being in those dangerous situations. He felt as though he had purpose being out in combat and was real comfortable with it. Another soldier described him as generous and courageous. He was specifically protective of women and LGBTQ soldiers on his teams. He was very close to his lesbian cousin, and he would tell her that it was important for him to protect those soldiers During the don't ask, don't tell time in the military. That's important. Very important. One soldier said he had the heart of a lion and the soul of a saint. So we're getting a lot of conflicting reports about Sam here. After he concluded his deployment, he was sent back to base in Germany for his remaining 11 months in the Marines. There he met a local German girl named Katarina. The young couple fell in love and stayed together even when Sam moved back to California and resumed civilian life in May of 2009. Katerina often visited Sam for weeks at a time. He referred to her as his fiance, and the two were working out a long-term plan. They were not sure whether she was going to move to the United States or he was going to move back to Germany. He also was thinking that he wanted to rejoin the military at some point. So they were in love and they wanted to eventually get married, but they were kind of Figuring everything out. Okay. In the interim, Sam was enjoying spending time with his family and getting to be a normal young California guy. He moved into the Camden Martinique Apartments and quickly became one of the most popular tenants. The complex was pretty big and almost all of the residents, I think they said something like 70% of the residents were under 25. Whoa. So this was party central. They did like Taco Tuesdays together. They were always drinking, socializing. There was like a pool and a hot tub that people would hang out at. So this was a really fun place to live if you're young. Yep. He enrolled at Orange Coast College to study political science. The goal was to earn a four-year degree and then re-enter the military as an officer, as officers get better pay and obviously more respect. He had a good head on his shoulders and a good chunk of change in the bank. Sam had amassed a little over $60,000 in combat pay during his deployment, and he very wisely planned to use it to buy a house someday. It was at Orange Coast College that Sam met Juri, also known as Julie Kibuishi, a vibrant and kind Japanese-American 23-year-old who tutored him in anthropology. Julie was so It's just, it's hard to describe when you don't know somebody, but you look at pictures and you feel like you can see them. She was so vibrant, and there's this sweet, kind, big energy that just comes out of her eyes. Okay. She was also apparently a very talented dancer and creative. Julia was born on Valentine's Day, 1987. (laughs) She's a, and she was a hopeless romantic. Her MySpace was so cute. I mean, honestly, it was probably similar to mine. Yeah. It was like, it was just about how we can be better with kindness and how much she loved Pablo Neruda poems, which, I mean, if you are not into Pablo Neruda when you're a 20 something girl, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it is just romance pornography. Oh my God. She was a, a hopeless romantic, which she always credited for being born on Valentine's Day. And uh, she was the third of four kids born to a Japanese couple named Junko and Masa. June said that her first two children were boys and that when she first got pregnant with Julie, she was actually told that Julie was a boy. So when she gave birth, it was a huge surprise and a gift because she had really wanted a little girl. So cute. Julie took to dance very naturally and started competing from a young age. She even graduated from the prestigious Orange County School of the Arts. Julie's high school jazz instructor said, She was beautiful. She was graceful. She was strong. She was emotional. Julie's kindness was really immeasurable. She was very warm and talented and compassionate. It was so much fun to watch her on stage. After high school, she decided to go after another artistic pursuit and enrolled in Orange Coast College to study fashion. Her goal was to find an internship with an Orange County-based sports apparel company like Quicksilver. One of the hallmarks of Julie's personality was kindness, like I've mentioned, as evidenced by her offer to tutor Sam when he was struggling in anthropology. The two ended up hitting it off and becoming fast friends. They had a lot in common. They were both outgoing, charismatic, they were popular, and they were also both engaged in long-distance relationships. Julie was in an online relationship with a Marine corporal named Mark Johnson who was stationed in Okinawa. With both of their partners overseas, Julie spent a lot of time with Sam and his friends and neighbors. And Sam called her his little sister. And by all accounts, the two were truly platonic friends. But now, vibrant Julie was murdered and Sam was on the run. So what- Yeah, yeah, not looking good not looking good. looking good. What the hell happened here? Well, the detectives were definitely trying to figure that out. Immediately after they discovered Julie's body in Sam's apartment, the police began an intense manhunt for the missing military vet. The murder weapon hadn't been found at the scene, so it was assumed that Sam was armed and very dangerous as he was trained by the military. Yeah. It was also, as more evidence presented itself, it was looking really, really bad for Sam. So questioned, had he been treated for PTSD when he came back
0: from serving?
1: Yes. I okay. don't know to the extent of how his treatment was going. I do not believe he was currently in any sort of therapeutic process at the time of Julie's murder. However, it was on record that he was officially diagnosed and suffered from PTSD. His car, phone, passport, and wallet were all missing. The police hypothesized that it must have been some sort of crime of anger or passion because clearly there was no exit strategy. There was no attempt to hide the body. Yeah. It seemed like maybe there had been some sort of PTSD response. I don't know what the writing was all about, but then he fled the scene. While they were looking for Sam, they ended up pulling both his and Julie's phone records, and they also did have Julie's phone. It was left at the scene. So they're trying to go through their calls and their texts to figure out what the timeline had been that had led to Julie's murder.
0: Absolutely. yes.
1: Yeah. So Julie had been out the previous night with her brother Taka and his fiance, who had just officially asked her to participate in their wedding to be a bridesmaid. Oh. Uh, and it had been a really nice celebratory evening. They gave her this tiara that she was going to be wearing when she participated in the wedding. And he said that she had been receiving some troubling texts from Sam while they were out to dinner and then after when they went back to Taka's Long Beach home. Okay. The text messages on her red Samsung phone did confirm this. So here's what the text messages say. Can you come over tonight at midnight alone, began Sam, going out for a bit, very upset, need to talk. Yeah, Julie answered. About what? please don't tell anyone. Please. I won't, Sam. I don't talk to anyone from Camden's anymore because I'm so busy talking to Mark, which was her boyfriend. Yep. Please. No sex. I need to talk to somebody. The request seemed ridiculous. Lol. You, Sam. We are like brother and sis. No sex. Jesus. I really just want to talk. I can't talk about it. I need somebody I can trust. You can trust me. I promise. I'm not going to say anything. I promise. Pinky promise. I'm hurting with some bad fam crap. I can't be alone. No sex, please. I'm begging as a brother. What? And also Taka did say that Julie said that this was very weird, that this communication between the two was strange. Seems like it's not even like him. Yeah, and that this they had never really talked about sex this way. For him to bring it up twice was strange. Okay. But she also said that maybe he was just very emotional. He seemed like he was going through something at this point. So, you know, maybe he wasn't thinking straight. Maybe he was drinking. She didn't know. Thank you. Be here at midnight. I will be back around then. Okay, I can't spend the night though. That's cool. You're saving my life. This was followed by another text from Sam. Okay, thank you so much again. I feel I have no one I can share this with. You won't let me down? I never let my friends down when they need me. No problem. Uh, Thank you. You're an angel. Later, Julie received another text from Sam and it had kind of an anxious tone. Where are you? Just about back. Can you come by? I don't want to be up late. Yeah, I'll leave now. I'm in Long Beach at my brother's. Then he wrote, getting off the freeway, feel like talking a bit, don't want to make it a late night. Julie was asked how soon she thought she'd be able to arrive at Sam's apartment. She said 30 minutes. Cool. He said, please don't bring anyone. I don't really want anyone to know what's going on. The next message was from Julie. Hey, buddy, I'm here. I'm walking to your place. So she was also texting with Taka, with her brother. And she said that it was cold outside. And as she approached Sam's apartment when she was on his floor she said that she heard something. She texted Taka and said, "Uh uh-oh, Sam is crying. It's not good. Something was going on here, clearly. And it looked very much as though Sam had lured Julie to his apartment to maybe make a move on her, to sexually assault her. On her back, it had said, F you, But when they rolled her over on her shirt in the front, it had also been written the phrase, all yours, fuck you again. So they're really confused about this. And Now they have a working theory that maybe he invited her over. He made a move. She rebuffed his advances because she had a boyfriend and then he killed her. So all yours is about her boyfriend? I don't think there's any (laughs) trying to figure this one out. Yeah. When the police uncovered that Sam had once been arrested in the connection with another murder and had a bad case of PTSD, it pretty much sealed the deal on this is... The guy who did the murder. Yeah. They just need to find him at this point. Meanwhile, Sam's dad, Steve, and his other loved ones were really struggling to believe that Sam was capable of this because, I mean, you heard all of those nice things that all of those people had said. Clearly, he had a lot of people who loved him and respected him. Yeah. They were struggling with the fact that somebody who had always been so protective and respectful of women was had done something so egregious and so yeah, violent. But I don't think that, like...
0: Part of their brain is there when they are struggling with
1: another mental illness. You know what I mean? Like, I mean I that is a very, very valid point. I mean, I was getting a lot of shades of Zach from Zach and Addie uh-huh. in this story. Like, he loved her. <laughs> yeah, he loved Addie. and and that's and they had a different. It seemed seemingly different relationship, but. Yeah, you don't know. And it seems like they were in Afghanistan at at a similar time and were also Mm -hmm. stationed in Germany. So there was a lot of similarities. Um, I'm not sure what episode it is, guys, but if you haven't listened, the Zack and Addy episode from a while ago is a very powerful episode as well. So, yeah... It was it was a really hard time for the loved ones because you can't believe that somebody you care about that you respect would do something like this. And it was also hard for Stephen and Raquel because he was a suspect. The police were not very open about everything that was going on in the investigation with his parents because they didn't want to give them any information that they could potentially feed to Sam, who's on the run. So Steve decided that he was going to do his own investigation. He literally took a leave of absence from his work and began to try to put together the pieces that might lead to some answer. In the event of emergency, Sam had previously given his father all of his online baking information. And Steve began to monitor the activity to see where Sam might have gone. And he saw that somebody had been making withdrawals and had gotten pizza at a place called Echo's Pizza in Long Beach. Steve also interviewed all of Sam's friends and neighbors, and one of his good friends said that he believed that Sam had probably last been spotted with a neighbor and a friend named Dan, who was a local actor. And he said that he thought that he was going to this theater with Dan so that they could move some sets. I think that Sam was helping Dan with something. Okay. So Steve did track down this guy. His name was Daniel Wozniak. And he said that he had been with Sam that day, but that Sam had been really, really distraught and deeply, quote, fucked up about family and woman problems, is what Dan said. Okay. But this didn't really sit right with Steve because... He was really, really close to Sam. They were more like best friends than father and son. And so he knew that there was nothing family-wise going on. I mean, he's an only child. He knows everything that's going on in their family. He's like, the fucked up family stuff, that doesn't make any sense. And he also had talked to Katerina. And he was like, were you guys having problems? Was something going on? And she was like, no, he just, he seemed totally normal. And then I couldn't get a hold of him. He's just gone. So Steve was a little suspicious of this report and skeptical of what Dan was saying. And so he went to the police and he said, look, I have all of my son's financial information. And I know somebody is using his bank card or he's using his bank card, but you guys need to figure out what's going on there. And also you're probably canvassing the whole apartment complex. Yeah. However, this one guy, you know, I've been trying to get answers out of him and I think he's lying, but I just don't know why. Well, the police were actually all over this already, of course, and had picked up the withdrawals from Sam's bank account. The cameras at the ATM had picked up a white teenage boy taking out $400 a day. Huh. They did not know who this kid was, and no one close to Sam or Julie recognized him. Luckily, one day they got a ping on Sam's card that somebody had ordered pizza And even better, they had ordered delivery pizza. Oh my God. So they got the address from the pizza place and it ended up being this little house in Long Beach. So they believed that Sam was hiding out at this house and potentially armed and extremely dangerous. So they sent a full SWAT team from the movies. We're talking Independence Day level teams going in, helicopters, snipers, ground level. They got the, you know, the radios, they're communicating. They've got a whole choreographed attack planned. And so they bust into this house and there is no Sam, but there is a 16 year old kid and his terrified parents. Oh
0: my God, his
1: parents. I mean, this kid was shitting his pants, but his parents must've been like, what the fuck did you do? So the kid's name was Wesley Frelick, and he was so thrown by this whole thing. They searched his house and they did find Sam's bank card. So Wesley said that the ATM card had been given to him by a friend. He said that the guy was kind of a mentor to him this person who had given it to him said that what he was doing wasn't a crime because this friend was a bail bondsman and that the card belonged to a client who had disappeared and jumped bail, essentially. He said that he was just getting his money back in $400 increments. A 16-year-old? The 16-year-old was doing this on behalf of his bail bondsman friend, is what he says. Uh, now- What? What? <laughs> So Wesley said that he wasn't supposed to be ordering pizza on the card, but he didn't think the guy would mind. You got to love hiring teenagers for your dirty work because they're going to do this shit. They're going to order pizzas and get a whole SWAT ass team thrown to their house. Yeah. Yeah. So who is the guy who is this friend of a 16 year old? Well, it is none other than Daniel Wozniak the actor neighbor of Sam's who had last been seen with him. Wesley said that he had met Dan through the local theater and had been taking out the $400 a day on the card and giving it all to Dan. So detectives decided at this point to take a very close look at Mr. Wozniak. And I think it is time for us to do the same. I I couldn't agree more. Daniel Wozniak was a local theater actor who had ambitions to make it in show business, but not much else. He had a very spotty employment history. He did brief stints as a sales associate at places like Sprint and AT&T, but it seemed like he had a real cash flow problem pretty consistently. Dan was part of the group at the apartment complex. But he had rubbed some of Sam's friends the wrong way. They thought he was arrogant, a bit of a try-hard, and he was one of those people that didn't hold his liquor very well, so he'd get like a little messy when he drank too many Jack and Cokes, which was his drink, apparently. Yeah. Not (laughs) the Jack and Coke, but like the sloppy drunk. Yes. Now, those who actually liked Dan described him in similar ways to Sam, actually. He was outgoing, he was willing to make fun of himself, he was a really good time, and he was super congenial. Some of his theater friends and his family said that Dan had changed, however, after becoming involved with and getting engaged to a fellow actor, a petite, beautiful blonde named Rachel Mae Buffett, who was 23 at the time of Julie's murder. Rachel was literally a princess as a job. She played Ariel at Disneyland as well as the part of an honest-to-goodness princess at Medieval Times. So she's employed. She's employed, so that's good. Yeah. If you guys do not know what a Medieval Times is, it is a fantastic dining experience where you are in like this massive hall that's supposed to be set like Medieval times, wink, wink. And you eat these giant turkey legs and drink steins of beer and watch actors playing knights uh, joust for the favor of apparently Rachel May Buffett. So yeah, medieval times, princess, Ariel. In any case, Rachel had grown up extremely conservative and very religious. She had been homeschooled and pretty sheltered for most of her life. The interesting thing about her playing a Disney princess was that there were accounts that her parents literally edited Disney movies to take out the parts that they didn't think were in line with the Bible, like kissing and stuff like that. She also wasn't allowed to read any books except for the Bible, apparently. Rachel and Dan had met while they were doing a play together and they had fallen in love. Their union had not been particularly blessed by either family. It was a very weird situation where it seemed like they moved in together very quickly, but her parents clearly did not know because that would have been living in sin. So she said she was living with her brother and her brother did live with them. But it was a weirdo situation where he couldn't keep a lot of things in their room. And he like only came home at night because they were afraid that her parents would just pop by at any time. Weird very weird. Dan proposed in 2008 with a vintage ring that he told Rachel had belonged to his grandmother. However, it would later come to light that it was not his grandmother's ring at all and I don't think it was a real diamond like he had said it was. What do you do? Find it at like the skate park? I do not know where he dug this ring out of. And Dan's parents also said that they had only met Rachel a handful of times and that he had completely stopped speaking to his parents around six months before Julie's murder. Dan's friends and family blamed his fiance, saying that Rachel had driven a wedge between Dan and his loved ones. Now, at at this point, when they're investigating Julie's murder, this is happening, gosh, I think that when they get the intel about... Dan, it's like a Wednesday and they're supposed to be getting married that weekend, Dan and Rachel. Yeah, this is like a lot of drama. A lot of drama.
0: It's like that meme that's like, am I the drama?
1: Yes, and he was the drama. I mean, this is also uh, kind of expected from two local theater nerds who are getting married and making their wedding a big deal. In fact, they were so well known in these local theater groups, that they were known as the Royals because they were so cute and they were this good-looking young couple that got all the best parts and all the plays. I do not think he's good-looking. Obviously, my heart belongs to Sam in this episode, but he's got nice blue eyes, got dark hair. I guess he's like an okay-looking guy. She is a very petite, very blonde. I would say a very cute girl, very cute girl. I mean, she looks like every, I mean, she's from California, but she looks like any girl that would get off a bus from Oklahoma and try to make it in the big city in LA to become a star. Yeah. She's a cute girl. What's the girl's name from Penny Lane? Yes. She's not as cute as Kate Hudson. I'm not going to go that far, but (laughs) the the same, the same vibe. Yeah. Most people aren't as cute as Kate Hudson, (laughs) but yeah. So there was this rift to the point where I think that his parents were invited to the wedding, but my feeling was that he hadn't communicated with them. So he maybe just sent them an invitation, but hadn't told them when he was getting married or what was going on. Like an (laughs) e-fight? Yeah, he sent them an e-fight. So he claimed that the falling out was because his family didn't like Rachel because they quote, wanted me to be with like a doctor or lawyer. Oh. Really? But the truth was that the rift had happened after Dan was caught stealing money from his parents. Gross. And that's not all Dan stole. No, Dan had also taken his father's thirty-eight caliber pistol. When he moved into the Camden Martinique Apartments in February 2010, three months before Julie's body was found in Sam's apartment, he brought that gun with him. Uh. the bank card scam was enough to arrest Daniel. So they called him and asked him to come down to the station. So at this point, he doesn't realize that he is in big trouble. And he says, "Well, I actually can't tonight because it's my bachelor party. <gasps> he did not. What do U.S.
0: News, PC Magazine, and Popular Science have in common? They all ranked Safe home security as the best home security of 2021. In fact, U.S. News just named Safe the best home security of
1: 2022 as well. With little kids in the house, I have never been more security conscious. It's so easy to overlook, but an absolute priority to keep our family safe. I mean, not to mention all of the true crime stories we read on a daily basis that make me terrified of home invasions.
0: Simply Safe protects your whole home around the clock, every door, window, and room. It's backed by the best 24 7 professional monitoring in the business, ready to dispatch police, firefighters,
1: or EMTs to your home. With a comprehensive set of sensors and cameras, including the all new wireless outdoor security camera, you always know what's going on inside and outside of your home. Simply Safe is less than $1 a day,
0: and you can set it up in around 30 minutes, and it's always simple to use. There's never a long term
1: contract. You can even try it for 60 days risk free to see if you like it. If you don't, send it back free of charge. Simply Safe protects over a million homes in the United
0: States alone. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafecom slash lovemurder. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafecom slash lovemurder.
1: Yeah, so he said, uh, no, thank you to the police when they said, get your ass down to the station. And they said, cool, 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 cool. Uh, we'll get you then. And they came and arrested him at the sushi restaurant in front of all of his friends. Dinner is served. Oh, and he was really bitchy about the fact that they waited to arrest him until after he had paid the bill. What a cheapskate. It's so cheap. So now began the biggest performance of Dan Wozniak's life. If his interrogation was a play titled Obvious and Increasingly Desperate Lies, then I think he hit it out of the park. Oscar. Oscar. Oscar-winning performance. But if he was going for innocence, then he failed pretty badly. 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Thank you very much. So Dan's first story was that he was simply participating in bank fraud with Sam, but had nothing to do with the murders. Got
0: it. Okay.
1: He said that he was getting married in a couple days. His rent was two months late. He was really stressed out about money. So Sam knew this and suggested that Dan and Wesley take cash out, split it with him. And then after, you know, a week or two, he would claim to his bank that his ATM card had been stolen and it clearly wasn't him on the ATM camera, nor was it anyone he knew, so that's why Dan couldn't be taking the money out because he could be traced back to Sam. And then the bank would recoup him the money and everyone would win. So that was I'm the plan. So confused. Dizzying intellect yeah. on this guy yeah, over here. Yeah. So they're like, uh-huh, okay, cool. So what about Julie? Dan said, you know what? I'm going to tell you everything. I'm not going to cover for Sam anymore. Enough is enough. Like it's a monologue. You guys can see snippets of this interview on the 2020. And I'm sure there was like a dateline about this. There's plenty of shows about this case. So you guys can, I'm sure, see this on any of those shows. So he says he's not going to protect Sam anymore. He's like, you know what? I'm going to admit it. I'm going to come clean. Sam told me he killed Julie. He did. He told me that he doesn't know what happened. He freaked out. He killed her and, you know, I was pretty scared, but he said that he wouldn't hurt me or my fiance if I drove his car and dropped him off at a mall. So I didn't go in his apartment. I didn't see the body. I just heard from him. And then I did, I do know where his car is because I dropped him off at the mall. And I'm sorry for, you know, participating in this. I was really scared for my life. And they're like, Okay, this was a pretty bad plan. Why would you drop him off at the mall? And he's like, oh, so we could just disappear in the crowds. And they're like, oh, the mall with all of the security cameras everywhere. That's a great place to disappear in the crowd. And they brought this up. And he's like, oh. And they're like, those same security cameras will definitely show you dropping him off at the mall, right? So when were you there? What time? We're going to contact the mall. And he's like, well... You know, maybe, I'm not really quite sure about, you know, what time it was. The longer the interrogation went, the more Dan kept changing his story, uh, adding had he, details. Had he already said what, mall or no? He's like, we were at a Build-A-Bear. Stop.
0: Shut the fuck no, up. No, I'm Seriously. kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. No, that's a joke.
1: Yeah, no, he just keeps changing his story. And every time they call him out on something, he just tweaks it a little. And they say, I think one of the detectives says in the 2020, like, it's clear when somebody's lying because they changed their story a million times. If you're telling the truth, there's one version of the story, the truth. Oh, oldest tale in the book. hmm So finally, after hours of this interrogation, the investigators are like, you know what, we're going to let you go. We just gonna need to DNA swab you. And he actually kind of looked relieved, like, oh, God, I can finally get out of here. And then they're like, yeah, but, you know, you should probably let us know. I mean, is there any reason we would find your DNA in Sam's apartment? And he had previously told them, of course, that he had not been in Sam's apartment. And all of a sudden, now he's changing his story again. You know, it's the game of evolving answers. Okay, yep. You know, I was in the apartment, but I didn't see Julie's body. And they're like, okay, cool. So we won't find any of your DNA on Julie's body. And he's like, well, you know what? turns out I did see Julie's body. And they're like, so what did you do to Julie's body? He's like, nothing. And they're like, so we won't find your DNA. DNA doesn't just hop off a person and onto another person. <sighs> oh my God. Uh, so at this point, he's clearly getting shaken. He had gone in confident. I'm going to act my way out of this one. Now is looking real shaken. He's frustrated. His acting's getting worse. He's like, Yes, I saw the goddamn body. Is that what you want to hear? Like he's still like doing some kind of, you know, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth moment he thinks over here. At that point, he did inadvertently reveal something that only the killer would have known. So they're asking him if he did see Julie's body, when he did see Julie's body, what state it was in, what did it oh look my God. like? They're such good detectives. Such good detectives. And he said that she had been shot twice in the head. Now, the way she had been shot and the way the bullets had entered her head, there was only one visible wound. Okay. Which is why Steve Hare thought that she had been shot the one time. And it wasn't even, even on a professional, it wasn't very clear until they did the autopsy. So there was no way that unless he either put two bullets in Julie's head or he was in the room when it happened, that he would be able to know that she had been shot twice in the head.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Steve, yeah, he who just was in there had no idea. He had no idea. He thought she was shot once.
1: So yeah, they, they've got him. So they decide that they're going to bring in Rachel, his fiance, as some leverage. And they already don't like Rachel. She had done some lying of her own to the police. They had originally, as a couple, tried to say that there was some sketchy guy hanging around with a black cap. And they had also found that she had lied about taking some money from a friend. There was a bunch of lies that she had already told them. Well, that's not very biblic. That is not. There's like this other podcast I'm going to talk about later. It's called Sleuth. I'll get into it uh, much later. But (laughs) they actually interviewed one of Rachel's ex-boyfriends. And he said she's just working her way through the commandments, that girl, breaking them all. (laughs) That's amazing. That's off to you. So yeah, lying was not top of her list, apparently, here. So they already don't like Rachel. And they have a feeling that she's involved in the murder as well. So they wanted to get her in a room with him and have her, like, see what they're both doing, what their interactions are. And they also, they told her basically like, well, you know, he has something to tell you and you're not going to believe it if it comes from us. We want him to tell you himself, which is that he helped cover up Julie's murder and that Sam killed Julie. That's what the big confession is supposed to be. So they get her in the room with him And he's like, I have to tell you something. I do know more than I told you. Sam did kill Julie and I helped him cover it up. And the police were very shook when she doesn't have any sort of response to this. She just goes, so Sam killed Julie? Why? Why? That's all she says. She doesn't have as good of acting skills as Dan. <laughs> Clearly not. Apparently, Disneyland is not the training ground for actors that I thought it was. Yeah. They only have to trick four year olds. So <laughs> 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 oh, and I can uh, trick my daughter with the old thumb trick. Ooh, where's my thumb? Yeah, it's not it's not hard. Yeah. So they were saying that you would be like, Oh my God, what are you talking about? How did you get involved with this? What happened? What did you do? You know, you wouldn't be like, Well, why? You know? And so the one of the detectives said about this whole situation with her being as cool as a cucumber. He said, There was no reaction. And that's what kind of caught us off guard is that he's telling her what's going on, and she has absolutely no reaction, nothing. Her acting skills are bad, and she is suspicious. So they let Rachel go, and at this point, they're like, you know, Dan, get some rest. I'm sure that was hard for you to have to tell your fiancé that. And also, you had to tell your fiancé that, guess what? You're not getting married in a couple days because you're staying your ass in jail. Yeah, I was going to say, for the other crimes, right? Yeah, because it's still financial fraud. He still defrauded a bank and used somebody else's card. So... And theft and God knows what else. So at that point, they're like, you know, you get some rest. You take whatever calls you need to call, though. If you want to talk to your fiancé, you talk to your fiancé. Call her anytime you want. On that recorded line. On that recorded line. (laughs) Uh, Well, he absolutely took them up on the offer. And again, there's some very bad acting on this part. This was the most awkward line for me personally. was on one call. Rachel's like, why would you do this? How could you do this? I do not understand. And he's like, because we needed the money. I needed the money for you. And she said, no, we never need money. We need to be good people and love each other. Which <laughs> is a very uncomfortable and weirdly written line. But it's also a lie that she's saying we don't need money or acting like they didn't need money. A normal person would say, yeah, I know we needed money, but not like this. Yeah, but like who was writing these scripts? Was it Dan? <laughs> I don't know. No, not a couple of brain trust right here. They're not like Joyce McKinney with that 168. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so it's very awkward and we know she's lying because the couple had been kicked out of their previous apartment. I think that was the one that they shared with her brother for not paying rent. And then they were already two months late in their new apartment. Dan had stolen the money from his parents. Like we talked about. And, They had borrowed money from a lot of their theater friends, other neighbors. They had been basically hitting everybody up for money, being like, hey, could you give us a wedding present? We just need some fast cash. So shady. So shady. (gasps) Super shady. And all of these witnesses said that he did it in front of Rachel. It wasn't like he was doing it like, you can't tell Rachel, but I need the money. So yeah. There was no world in which she didn't know that they needed money. And in fact, a search of her computer showed that on like two or three nights leading up to when Julie was murdered, she had actually been going through and looking at topless dancing jobs for money. Huh. Okay. So clearly they were hard up for cash. So she's clearly lying. So continuing on in one of these conversations, Rachel mentions to Dan that his brother, Tim, was freaking out. She said, did you give something to Tim? Because he called me, he's freaking out. He said that maybe you gave him something incriminating. And Dan definitely wasn't acting, I don't think at this part, because he sounded genuinely scared for the first time. He was like, what do you mean? I mean, what is he going to do? Is he going to tell somebody? And she's like, well, so far he's only told me. And he's like, good, well, you don't, you know, don't tell anyone. And she's like, well, this fucking phone call is recorded you know, smarty and he's like, well, you can't, I mean, don't tell the police, don't tell the police about what I gave to Tim. Okay. And she's like, I don't know. I think I should just come clean. I think I should just tell them that Tim has this thing and Tim might tell them he's freaking out. And Dan's begging now. He said, look, I was, I was really just covering for Sam and now I'm going to go away for life. If you tell the police I'm dead, And she said, very coldly, by the way. I mean, if she's going for, you know, acting, this was her line. She said, baby, you're already dead.
0: Whoa. Whoa.
1: Cold as ice. She went on to say, and I think these were a couple different phone conversations. I'm putting them together in the interest of keeping the story moving. But he did say to her, you know, I've done something really bad. Quote, probably the worst thing you can think of. At which point, Rachel straight up asked, did you kill them? And he says, nothing. He pauses. Now, I thought that this was really interesting because we were all operating under the assumption that Sam is alive and on the run. And that's what he's been telling people. So why would she say, did you kill them? Yeah. The detectives and prosecutor Matt Murphy, who, by the way, Matt Murphy has done a ton of cases. He was the prosecutor on that other Orange County case we did with the woman and her pro football player boyfriend. Uh-huh. Yep. It's the same prosecutor. He's great. And he would later point out that there was no horror or shock in Rachel's voice at all in any of these admissions, even when he tells her that he's done the worst thing that she could possibly imagine. There was no horror. There's no, what did you do? You know? In fact, she does go on to say, and this is a quote from the transcript. I still love you. You're stupid and insane, but I know in your own twisted little mind that you were doing it because you wanted me to be happy. And I hate you for screwing it up. Okay. So that certainly seems like somebody who was in cahoots to me. Yeah, she
0: should be cahooting her way to her own jail cell.
1: So Dan knew that his goose was cooked at this point because this is all recorded. And he confessed to the police everything. Okay. And it is a doozy. He opened his confession with, I'm crazy and I did it. I killed Julie and I killed Sam. Oh my God, where's Sam? We're about to find out. So he said that he did it for the money. Dan revealed what we already know, which is that he was terribly in debt and that one day he had been running errands with Sam and they went to the ATM. Looking over Sam's shoulder, Dan noted Sam's PIN number because he's a creep, number one, and a thief. Yeah, yeah. But he also saw that Sam had sixty-two thousand dollars in his account because they show you your balance. Yeah. That was the sum total of his combat pay savings. So at that moment, Dan said that he decided to kill his neighborly war hero friend so that he could treat Rachel to a nice wedding and honeymoon. That's disgusting. It is the lowest of low. But because he's a theatrical asshat, it wasn't enough to kill just Sam for greed. He also created this entire scenario in which he had to kill Julie or, by the way, another woman. Unfortunately, it was Julie, but there was another woman that he had previously tried to lure over to Sam's as well. Uh, he needed a woman to kill to make it look as though Sam had killed a woman and yeah. then gone on the run and was still making withdrawals from his account. So let's get into the sickness. It's like he details. literally
0: listened to one podcast and was like, oh, I have a good idea.
1: Yeah. And there was a relish in him telling this story about oh, how God. he had this plot and how yeah, he he's the thought star his of his up. film. Yeah. Yeah, it's disgusting how full of himself he is and how, the, yeah, you're right. He is the star of his own murder movie. Gross. Uh, so yeah, so he starts getting into the details of what happened. He said that he actually murdered Sam first by luring him to a theater that was on a military base. This was a family-run theater, which, by the way, had to shut down after all of this bad publicity that Dan had worked at and had performed in. He asked Sam for help moving some sets into the attic space of this theater. Once they were in the attic, Daniel Wozniak shot Sam Hare in the back of the head with a 38 pistol. Sam fell to his knees and said confusedly, something happened. I think I just got electrocuted. Oh my God. So he was still alive. Dan went to shoot him again, but the gun jammed. So he then quickly pulled the slide back, ejected the jammed round out of the gun and shot Sam again in the temple. Well, his so-called friend looked up at him asking for help. Jesus. This man survived 15 months of enemy fire in Afghanistan to die by this coward asshole's hand. So horrible. So Dan then robbed Sam of his phone, wallet, and keys. He texted Julie from Sam's phone after failing to get this other woman interested in conversation with him to lure her to Sam's apartment. Now, Dan needed to go to a show that he was starring in at another theater. He's in a musical called Nine. So that's why the text messages were so weird. And he was also saying, I'll be home around midnight because he then went to another theater and performed with Rachel, who was also in the play. And then went to a cast party afterwards and had a great time. There's pictures of him partying. He's on the video. He's having a good time. So disgusting. It's revolting. So he ended up going back to the apartment. He left Rachel in the apartment, he said. Rachel, for her part, said that she believed that he was in the apartment all night, but she fell asleep, so she wasn't sure. That was her story. He waited for Julie to arrive. He then met her at Sam's door. He claimed to be concerned about Sam as well. He said that Sam had given him the extra key and he told her when they went in and that Sam wasn't there. He's like, you know what though? Actually, you actually need to see something in his room that he was showing me earlier that's concerning. So he pointed something out that she was supposed to look at. And at that point, he shot her in the kind of backside of the head twice. And then he staged her body to look like a sexual assault and some sort of love triangle potential motive. Hence the all yours and fuck you comments written on Julie's body. Now, this is not only vile because of what he did to desecrate lovely Julie, but prosecutor Matt Murphy also made a point later that he chose not only to kill two people who had been incredibly nice to him. He also decided to sully Sam's reputation by setting him up to look like a murdering rapist. Yeah, yep. Well, Dan said it was nothing personal. He just needed the money. But it's not over. What he did to Sam is not over. The next day, he went back to the theater where he had left Sam in the locked attic and he dismembered Sam's body with an axe and a saw. He wrapped Sam's body parts in plastic bags. He filled Sam's backpack with the body parts and then he dumped them in El Dorado Park. Oh my God. Now, Sam's parents had been holding out hope that he had been kidnapped, that he Uh, was still alive. They did not believe that their son was capable of this and they were correct, obviously, now that we know that. But they they were really hoping that something had happened at gunpoint and he was being held somewhere. So when they found this out, it was unbelievably devastating. And the next day they began a search of El Dorado Park where he had indicated he had left Sam's body parts. And the very next day, would have been Sam's 27th birthday. Uh, so Steve said, I'll never forget waking up on my son's birthday and praying that that day they would find his head. Oh my God. When the investigators asked Dan how he felt, what was going through his mind while he was dismembering his friend who had shown him kindness, Dan said, I felt fine. I was actually laughing and smiling. Oh, so he's crazy person and that's exactly it Andy on the previous recordings he had said also this is all recorded you dumbass uh he had said something like do you think I should go to a mental institution or jail and Rachel was like choose a mental institution and obviously you don't get that choice so he was now thinking that he was such a good actor that potentially he was saying these things to make it look yeah like yeah like he's actually crazy yeah he was also doing a very weird laugh and on the 2020 they point out that it's the same exact maniacal laugh that he did in another stage production Stop. and they they brought up the film of him on stage doing it and it's like the same exact laugh of a person losing Whoa. their mind wow wow so clearly he's trying to make it look like he is insane which people are always surprised that it's it's much harder to prove that you are you know mentally incompetent you know by reason of insanity than it seems. Yeah. Because there's like doctors and psychiatrists
0: who have studied it for like years, (laughs) decades that are examining you.
1: Yeah. So they also did find a it sounds like a half drank bottle of Jack Daniels and some empty Coke bottles up in the attics. They don't know if he was drinking up there while he was dismembering, whether he hung out with his body. We they don't know. They don't know. So, you know, what really gets to me is that how senseless and stupid this plan is. Like, he's telling the story, like, he thinks it's this great mastermind murder plot. But the plan, if the plan was to get money, your brilliant idea is to have a high school kid take out $400 a day until when? When does it end? Because it would take 155 days to get $62,000 out of that bank. You don't think that they're going to, catch on after 155 days when there's a manhunt because you made the guy look like a murdering rapist? Yeah. He's just not thinking. It's, he's trying to get a quick fix and it's not. No. It wasn't in this book and it wasn't in the 2020, but in the Sleuth podcast, it was suggested that Rachel may have been a drug user and I do not know what type of drug and she may have gotten... Daniel hooked on drugs as well, which would make sense with the fact that they never have money and that this is like a, a drug induced plot yeah, right here. Yeah. Yeah. So I do not know the details of that and I cannot corroborate the actual authenticity, but there was on another podcast a suggestion that that was what was going on here as well. He then put Sam's bloody clothes, the 38 pistol, two shell casings from Julie's murder. And Sam's passport in the backpack and he gave it to his brother, Tim, to dispose of. Now, Tim ended up facing some charges that I think he ended up pleading down to some sort of probation or something like that. Because he was also charged with this because he obviously participated in it. He didn't call the police. He panicked and he actually just, he was at their parents' house and he threw the backpack over a fence into another yard. Wow. Which he immediately told the police and they immediately found it. He, it was not so bright either here. They said on the 2020 that it was almost like a psychological response. Like, I can't even deal with this out of sight, out of mind. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so they found all of that treasure trove of physical evidence, the bloody clothes and the murder weapon everything they've got it all the shell casings i mean he basically handed them a discovery package here prosecute me as well as the beautiful full confession this is going to be a slam dunk case clearly eventually they did find some but not all of sam's remains It, it was very brutal a lot of his body parts had been ravaged by scavengers but they were ultimately able to identify him through the mom and dad heart tattoo that they found. So sad, so sad. So Dan was clearly going to trial for sure, and the state wanted to impose the death penalty. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. The death penalty is not a good thing because you can never be sure if somebody is really guilty. But in this case... (laughs) (laughs) You can be pretty, pretty sure that he did the damn thing. So yeah, they want to do the death penalty here. And they also wanted to nail Rachel, who they believed was an accessory to the murder. The evidence against Rachel was mostly lies and omissions to the police before Dan had confessed and that she had tried to cover up for him. Absolutely. Her attorney's said that, no, she's the one who said, I'm going to turn you in for whatever you gave Tim. So therefore she was helping you guys. So this was not as slam dunk a case, clearly, as Dan's. Yeah. They did show her on the 2020 episode taking a vocal stress test where she said, I didn't know about the murders. I didn't participate with the murders. I had no knowledge of this. And they said that she was lying. They said all of your answers came back as deceptive. Dan, around the same time, did an interview with MSNBC lockup while he was awaiting trial and he took everything back. They didn't really grill him. The journalist didn't really grill him about why he might have confessed all those things. He's just like, oh, I didn't didn't mean any of that and they made me say it and I'm totally innocent. I didn't kill those people. Okay, Dan. Mm -hmm. He also said very curiously, I thought this was curious. Maybe it's not a thing. He said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, the hardest part about being in prison is that I miss my fiance, Rachel. She means so much to me. I wish that I could see her every day, either out there or in here. And the way he said it made me feel like he was not so subtly saying that she deserved to be in jail as well. Yeah, that's weird. It was like a little off and it and it did have his trademark like wink wink if you know what I mean, type of like actor thing. Oh my god so I don't know that might just be me reading like is anyone picking up what I'm putting down (laughs) is any of the spaghetti sticking to the wall
0: did anything hit?
1: (laughs) almost (laughs) as obvious as I am when I try to make a joke that doesn't land and then I explain it and it gets less funny (laughs) um oh my god yeah so it definitely seemed I think she knew about it 100% if she didn't if she wasn't an active participant in this plan she did go on a Dr. Phil show and she painted herself as a victim of Dan's as well. She said, I know I'm not as much of a victim as Julie or Sam. Oh, and I, I mean, I guess their families too are probably victims, but then I'm next. Wow. Yeah. She tried to like dirty John this, saying that it was all she was completely taken in by a con man murderer. He had deceived her as well. She didn't know he was broke. She didn't know that her engagement ring was fake. She didn't know anything. He had been a liar. She also apparently, according to sources, was delighted by this media coverage and was so excited that everyone was calling her an actress. She was like, oh my gosh, they're calling me an actress in all the media. So Steve, Sam's dad, was also on the same episode of Dr. Phil and he was not having it. He told her very straightforwardly that she deserved to be in jail too and that he was going to do everything he could to make sure she was prosecuted. He's like, I'm not going to fucking have these alligator tears. Like, fuck you. Whoa. Yeah, it was heavy. So she was eventually charged with three felony counts of accessory after the fact but she was also let out on bail to await her trial. And speaking of waiting for trials, it took five and a half years for Daniel Wozniak to face justice. Whoa. Which, God, can you imagine how you were never (sighs) able to move on? And this was an excruciating wait for the families and the loved ones involved in this case. I believe that, I think it was both, but maybe just one of Julie's parents. were being treated for cancer at this point. They were diagnosed and getting treated for cancer. So I think Junko said, I mean, when in court proceedings, please, can we we get this trial going? Because I don't know if we will survive to see our daughter avenged. Jeez. Yeah, this was a, a terrible, terrible time in their lives. So the reason that it took so long was because they had to bring in a special attorney for specifically the death penalty portion of this case. Okay. There's going to be a ton of appeals in any death penalty case. So they had to make sure that he was adequately represented by somebody who is well-versed in the death penalty laws. And that attorney kept filing motions specifically to delay proceedings. He kept saying he was unavailable for this. He kept halting things. He kept moving things. The families, Matt Murphy, and even the judge were livid by all of this moving around and manipulation of the court. Eventually, the judge admitted that he got so frustrated with this defense attorney that he said, fuck it, I'm going to give this guy enough rope to let him hang himself, and I hope he fucks his whole case up. Whoa. And he admitted that and he said, because I feel that way, because I hate this defense attorney so much, I cannot be impartial to his client and I need to recuse myself. Whoa. Which now they need to get a new judge that further delayed the trial. Yeah. This was just a ball of fuck. So finally, on December 9th of 2015, Daniel Wozniak faced a jury of his peers His attorney tried to get the confession to the police thrown out, but the motion was denied. Thank you very much. (laughs) Despite all of the pretrial bullshit and shenanigans, Dan's defense did almost nothing during the main phase of the trial. The guy didn't even do an opening statement. They didn't call a single witness on Dan's behalf. Whoa. They basically said that there was no way he was going to be found innocent in any way you, you know, shook a stick at it. So they saved all of their energy, hours, and brain power for arguing that he shouldn't be put to death in the penalty phase. So Matt Murphy argued eloquently that it was a set of craven and cowardly murders for money. He showed a video of Dan acting on stage, singing and dancing his heart out, only hours after he had killed Sam and hours before he killed Julie. And then he also put up a chart that outlined Dan's diabolical plot to provide a fancy wedding and honeymoon for his little blonde Lady Macbeth. Oh my God. This is what the chart said that Matt Murphy put up at trial. He said this is how Dan thought he was going to make some money. One, don't get a job. Two, figure out Sam's pin, kill him, and take his ATM card. Three, find someone else to withdraw the money. Four, use Sam's phone to lure a woman, any woman, to Sam's apartment. Five, murder her as a decoy for police. Six, stage the scene to make it look like Sam did it in the midst of a sexual assault. Seven, if questioned, use charm and acting skills to make sure police spend all of their time looking for Sam. Clearly, the evidence against Dan was overpowering. An invitation for Dan's wedding was found in Sam's apartment, for example, and the handwriting on the envelope matched the handwriting on Julie's body. Okay. Wow. Also, this is one of my favorite dumbass criminal things that people do. It's time for the old, let's hear about his Google searches. Oh, no. (gasps) Yep. He had searched... Quick ways to kill people. Making sure a body is not found. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Head gunshot wound. How far away to hear a gunshot? How loud is a gunshot? As well as on the same day, thinking ahead to that chart, Mariner of the Seas cruise deals and Puerta Vallarta all-inclusive resorts.
0: That's horrible.
1: Yeah, so this was a pretty easy verdict for the jury. A few of the jurors are on the 2020 episode, and they said that the hard part was certainly not finding him guilty or not. That was beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. It was whether they were going to sentence a man to death.
0: Yep. I mean, that is is California.
1: It is, and it's it's heavy. I think Orange County is traditionally more conservative than a lot of the other parts of California. However, I mean... Holding a person's life in your hands is a weight that I would not want to uh, experience. No. So that's what the real crux of this case comes down to. He was found guilty, clearly, and his attorney argued in the penalty phase that Dan should not be put to death because he was merely the pawn in this plan that was all cooked up by Rachel And he was manipulated by her. She never had enough. She wanted more. She wanted a fancy ring. She wanted a nice wedding. She wanted an expensive honeymoon. And that she helped him cook up this plan in order to keep her. So he's saying, yes, he was a shitty person and he was an executioner. But can we take in the mitigating circumstances, the fact that he was completely manipulated by this person? I think that you should give him life in prison without the possible parole. How about that? Can we agree on that? Well, Sam's parents and Julie's family said, fuck no to that. And they read heartbreaking victim impact statements. Now, Junko says this later on the show. And I I think that she said that also in the trial, I'm not entirely sure when this happened, but her words really stuck with me because it's just, it's really sad. She said that she had raised her children to give kindness to others. She had gone out of her way in her endeavor to make good people and to raise children that would help others and be helpers. And she said that that kindness was Julie's soul, but it was that kindness, the desire to help a friend in need, the no questions asked, that ended up being used by her murderer to lure her to her death. Yeah. She was like, should I have raised her differently? Should I have raised her to not be kind, to suspect people? Oh, it's just, it is, I mean, what we lessons we impart on our children that make them hopefully good people could also make them this oh, terrible victim of this crime. It's just really, it breaks my heart. And and it, And if you really think about it, he had to think about something. Like, I guess the other person that he hit up was a girl that he thought was interested in Sam. And he kind of like hit up with like, hey, you want to come over? Wink, wink. And she was like, no, that's weird. We've never talked like this with each other. And no. And he then manipulated Julie. He had to think I need to get this person in this apartment for my plan yes, to then work. Then He said no sex, no sex. Yep. And he used the one thing he knew a good person like Julie would respond to. I really need somebody. I really need some help right now. Yep. Yeah, because he's a scumbag. He's a Gum bag. And, I, I, and I do have to remember, the problem is not with us teaching our children to be kind. It's not with kindness. The problem is people who didn't teach their children to be better or the people who do these things, not with the kind people who do the right thing. And also to that end, that was also Sam. Sam was going with this guy to to move some shit around the theater. Yeah, yeah. He was also helping him Out of the kindness of his heart, Sam's got shit to do. He's got friends and he's helping this random creepy neighbor dude. Ugh. So the jury deliberated for just over an hour and returned. Matt Murphy said it was by far the fastest deliberation he had ever seen in a death penalty case. The jury recommended, what do you think, Andy? A death penalty? They did, indeed. They sentenced him to death. The judge agreed. They said fucking injection for you, sir. He murdered two people, dismembered one of them and completely lied
0: and lured another in while also trying to do fraud and steal money. So I think he pretty much covered
1: everything. (laughs) Every manner of sins he did. Yeah. Yeah. So the jurors said that it was the pain in Sam and Julie's parents' testimonies that made them feel like they could not yeah, do anything else. Yeah. They were like, these people are wonderful people who, by the way, it was really amazing how those two families came together because Steve even talked about how he felt incredibly guilty because Sam was the target of the whole thing. And that if Julie hadn't been such a wonderful friend to Sam, she wouldn't have been murdered. And yeah, so he but- actually was like, I'm so sorry to Julie's parents. I'm so sorry that your daughter was so kind to my son that she was killed as well. Like he felt bad. And because they're wonderful people, they were like, we are together in this. This was not something Sam did. Or you did or anyone did. This was only the evil actions of one man and potentially his fiance. So yeah, so at sentencing, Steve and Raquel actually stood, because you know at sentencing, they get to speak directly to the killer. And they stood with a whole group of young men who had served with Sam, which was really powerful because this is a very emotional and very hard moment to look and address the person who killed your child. And apparently they had, all been supporting the hares through like a Facebook group page where everyone shared their memories of Sam and they had supported the hares every way they could. And so all of these, all of these guys showed up to physically stand with them during the hardest thing that they ever had to do. It was incredibly moving. And later on, even Steve ended up being one of their best men in their wedding because I guess Sam was supposed to be his best man and so they had Steve, his dad, take his place. It's sad. It is. It's so sad. And, and, and I guess that this community is still thriving, you know, keeping Sam's memory alive. And I'm really glad that the Harris have that in their life. So Steve did address Dan directly. And he said, you, Dan, are a coward. My only regret is that the state won't let me kill you myself. Oh, my God. Amazing. Yes. I honestly, I feel like they should. I feel like if somebody does this, the death penalty, they should be like, yep, and the father to the victim gets to murder you. That's the yeah. rule. <laughs> or the mother, who cares? Anyone You're who loves them. I'd kill somebody. Bare hands, rip them to pieces. Two years after Dan was sentenced to death, his ex-fiancee, Rachel, was convicted on two of the three counts of accessory after the fact, and she was sentenced to 32 months in jail, though she ended up serving, I think, just under a year. What? And... Yeah, I don't I don't really know all of the details about that. She was released from prison in 2019. I did mention a podcast called Sleuth, and Hannah actually found this podcast and sent it to me. She was the one who was really excited about this story because both Hannah and Juliet, who was our other person who recommended it, had a personal connection to this case because of the local theater community in Orange County. Hannah actually was active in this community theater group at the same time, knew him, knew people who knew him, did not actually act in a show with him, but they were in the same circles because she's the same age as him. And Juliet said she was the first person who recommended this case for me. She now lives in Georgia, I think, but she grew up in Orange County and her father was very big in the theater scene and was actually in place with this guy.
0: Oh my god. I'm sure yeah, that and I under- know someone who knows
1: him. I bet you do too. Yeah. So th- there was a lot of people that had some sort of connection to this guy. This is the worst Kevin Bacon game of all time. Was what is your connection, <laughs> connection to Dan Wozniak? To- oh my god. Oh God. Yeah. So there's this podcast called Sleuth, and the entire first season is devoted to this case and not Dan. The whole first season is devoted to proving that Rachel was indeed the mastermind behind the murders and got away with it. Wow. So they present Dan more as a hapless, manipulated, sad sack. They interview people who are friends with both of them and say like he was a great guy until he met her. Then everything changed and nothing was ever good enough for her. And as a result of this woman coming into his life, this is why everything happened. That's what they're saying on now. I was not able to listen to the whole series. I listened to parts of the first couple episodes and episode seven. Weirdly, there's like four, five, and six. The episodes are missing. I don't know why they were taken down. So yeah, so you guys can listen to it, but I just want to be clear that I am not (laughs) recommending it because I do not know the entirety of the contents of the season. So I don't want to be like too effusive and saying you guys definitely have to listen to it if it's not great. (laughs) But (laughs) in episode seven... The journalist who is the host interviewed a guy who dated Rachel shortly after Dan went to prison. And he had all sorts of crazy, crazy things to say about Rachel that I had not heard about in the book and in various other television programming, which was stuff about how she liked to shoplift, how she liked to manipulate men. She liked to push him to see how far he'd go for her. He was an older guy. He was much older than her. So it was kind of a weird, sketchy situation to begin with. I guess the podcaster at one point says that he had five previous wives too. So I don't know about this whole guy and this whole situation either. You know, so it's all very sketchy. But he said that she had a very bizarre relationship with Christianity and sex. He alleged that she told him that she had proudly had sex with a gay guy to do God's work in turning him straight.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah, he said that she liked to give blowjobs to church hymns and went down on a guy in the church nativity scene at Christmas. I feel like she's just making this shit up. I mean, she's making it up or he's making up. This stuff is nuts. He also said that her parents were very holier than thou, but in real life, they were very hypocritical. Her father had lost a bunch of the family's money because he was spending it on sex workers and drugs oh apparently. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it gets it gets worse because he also alleged, now this, I missed part of the interview, so Hannah filled me in via text message. So guys, again, I'm doing this secondhand, but he alleged that she had a very screwed up codependent relationship with her brother. And when her brother accidentally got his girlfriend pregnant, the two were plotting on how to crush up plan B and put it in her food without her knowledge so that she would be forced to have an unwanted miscarriage. Um, I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. Yeah, I don't think that you can take plan B after you find out you're pregnant. No. 48 hours after is a lot different than six weeks after. Yes. So, yes, there was also a suggestion that maybe she was, had been involved in some incestuous Type of thing with her brother, like she had to teach him how sex worked or something. It was very, but again, I don't know. I do not know. I'm I'm also a very big caveat, guys, that this is coming from an ex-boyfriend. You know, we always have to take a scorned ex-lover's reports with a grain of salt. And she might have been lying to make up this stuff to like like titillate him. She's yeah, an actress, exactly, after exactly.
0: all. She is an actress. She said it in the in the news.
1: She's very proud to be an actress. So who knows? I wanted to share that stuff with you because it was so bananas batshit, but I cannot verify its validity. So that's episode seven of Sleuth. You guys, if you want to hear that side of the story, check it out. Let me know. Let us know how it how it is. Let us know if you find episode four, five, and six. Yes, exactly. And, and figure out why it was taken down. The real, the real Sleuth thing needs to begin here. Uh, Yeah, the only there was like some mixed reviews Some the bad reviews I saw were that she was biased or, you know, that these sources were kind of gossipy. You know, it's an ex-boyfriend. And some people were like, I think she's kind of giving uh, Daniel Wozniak a pass at this. He still killed these two people. It doesn't matter whether it was his idea or not. He went through with it. Yeah. In 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom ordered an executive moratorium on the death penalty, effectively giving reprieve to the 737 people on death row in the state, including Daniel Wozniak. Julie and Sam's loved ones were extremely upset by this news. Steve and Raquel joined a coalition of state district attorneys and families of murder victims to protest the moratorium. They basically were saying, we understand that the death penalty isn't great in every circumstance, but can you look at it case by case instead of just saying no death penalty whatsoever. Steve said about the governor, he has reopened old wounds and he has created new ones as well, all for his feelings. That's not right and that's not justice. Newsom will absolutely not reinstate the death penalty. So unless he is voted out of office and succeeded by somebody who is pro-death penalty, which would shock me in... Mostly Democratic California. Yeah. Dan Wozniak will live, albeit behind bars, for the rest of his natural life. And I feel dreadfully for his family. And I can understand how that's hard to live with. But I mean, he's in a, he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And I hope it's a long, miserable one. Yeah. I was going to say
0: sometimes that's even like worse.
1: Yes. Absolutely. So we do have one Wikipedia fun fact, Andrea. Wikipedia fun fact. The song Killer from Eminem's 2020 album Music to be Murdered By, which I did not know was even a thing, references Wozniak. He wrote, you almost had a heart attack when you met Cardiac. You ran inside, told your boyfriend, like, I'll be back. But for all you know, I probably act like I'm Daniel Wozniak. I'm a psycho killer. Wow. Whoa, okay, Eminem. Also, second time Eminem has come up in one of our Wikipedia fun facts. Weird, very weird. In conclusion, I think we should all probably uh, take a beat and not hire teenagers uh, for our murder plots. We saw how that has worked out very poorly in the past and it certainly did this time when said teenager got hungry for a little pizza and instead ordered a whole SWAT team. (laughs) He got that SWAT team delivered.
0: I think it's also uh, fair for us to have a little bit of a different
1: lens when we go to Disneyland or Medieval Times now and we look at the princesses. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you guys so much for listening. Love y'all.